0: This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders, with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas Startups Podcast.
1: Damn, we sound sound like we're on Sunday night slow jams with that deep voice of yours. So I want to
0: apologize (laughs) to everybody. So I've been getting my ass kicked repeatedly for the last three weeks. Colin talked me into, into finally training Brazilian jiu-jitsu with him. And my trachea has been crushed repeatedly by guys who are like bigger than I am and I'm covered in <laughs> bruises and bumps. And I think like my knees are dislocated, my hips hurt, and but it's addicting. So I'm going to keep going back. So, but sorry, you guys have to listen to me. I sound like Barry White right now, <laughs> but it's been a good time, right? Yeah, it's been fun. It's been good. It's something humbling about getting your ass kicked first thing in the morning. It makes, a, yeah. makes the
1: rest of the work seem a lot easier. The rest of the day is not so bad after it that. It's not. <laughs> so, so what we got lined up, man. Do we have any announcements? I don't think we have any announcements. By the time this comes out, I'm trying yeah. to think. Our energy tech night, we're recording this. Today's the 20th energy tech Nights tomorrow night, 21st. So by the time this podcast drops, it'll be... Done and gone. We put together a fucking star panel and got a lot of good startups presenting. So I think this is going to be, you know, just the perception that we've had with it. I think this is going to be something ongoing once a quarter from now on.
0: Yeah. And the one thing that we, we keep talking about doing, we were actually, so we're planning on doing a Midland trip. We keep pushing it back. But then we had the idea of like, what if we just did like a and a episode on the drive to Midland since we have like eight hours. And so, but in order to have a and a episode, we have to have questions. And so I, each one of us get about a thousand questions a day, probably. It's a little bit of an exaggeration in our inboxes, but if you can go on to the ask a question on Oil and gas startups website, if you guys have any questions that you want us to answer.
1: You know, it'd be um, dope. LinkedIn's uh, about to drop their LinkedIn live oh, video yeah, platform. Yeah. So we just get on LinkedIn, eight hour drive live until we hit fucking west side of san antonio the i'd be reception sleeping for at least six of those hours for sure oh i know you will motherfucker you sleep more than anybody i know
0: so what do you think we got this couch in here man that is a nap couch specifically
1: all right <laughs> so what we got on the show today man what are we doing
0: so we've got seth blackwell with ruckus energy what's up bud
2: what's up how's it going oh
0: it's going man we're here we're here. We're, ma- right. we're making it. I'm excited though, because like I was telling you, we've we've had a lot of we've had a lot of great episodes, right? And you know, it's been very, very tech centric. And so ever since we had David Rams and Wood on, everybody keeps hitting us up and saying, "Hey, we need some more EP guys on." And then with our first initial conversation, you were telling me your whole life story, and I had to stop you. And I was like, "This is super interesting. <laughs> Save it for the podcast. Don't tell me anymore."
1: Which is funny because just before we recorded the podcast, Seth told us that he did a deal previously with David. So it's kind of, I mean, oil and gas is a small world, so it's no surprise. But it's good to have another EMP on the podcast and get that, that EMP perspective. Because I think that, you know, for me, I care a lot about hearing the stories of people that have done it. You know, obviously me and Jake are in the business of operating wells. So we enjoy hearing those stories. And I know a lot of people out there like hearing about that as well. So you have a million stories,
0: and I want to go through all of them. Um, <laughs> we don't we don't really have like a time cap or anything, but before we do that, kind of tell <laughs> us what you guys are doing with Ruckus Energy, where are you at now, and then we'll kind of go flashback and then walk us walks forward.
2: Yeah, so Ruckus Energy is like a small independent E&P company. Started it in May of 18, kind of focusing on the Permian again. I mean, to be honest, in this day and age, that's kind of where it's at, you know, so we're also looking at deals East Texas, DJ. We've evaluated in the last eight months. We've probably evaluated over 60 deals. I'm really just trying to find what fits best with our business model. We like to say we do a little bit more exploration rather than exploitation. So we try to get in an area that has a lot more upside, that doesn't exactly, you know, doesn't have every bench proven. We like to get in an area that we can actually drill some science wells, collect data, do our analysis delineate over certain areas of our acreage position and then let somebody else you know bigger come in and fill drill and kind of prove it up a little more so right now i mean it's it's there's five of us i'll get into that great management team we click on a lot of levels i mean we're friends more than anything we were partners before but it turned into a friendship we really enjoy being around one another in this type of business that's really what it takes yeah, you have to enjoy. You know who you have to deal with on a daily basis, who you have to make tough decisions with. I mean, that's what it all boils down to. If you don't get along with the people you see and work with every day, it's just it's not going to be pleasant by any means.
0: Do you have any like rule of thumb when when choosing those types of people? Which we can obviously dive a lot deeper into, but
2: rule of thumb when choosing them, well, you know, or some, like any like red
0: flags or
2: sometimes you get to choose them, and sometimes you don't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? So it's really like w- when you are choosing them. You know, it's really just like the people that you hit it off with, people that you can enjoy no. to go out with afterwards and have a beer with. Mm-hmm. If you can't stand being around somebody and having a beer with them after you, you know, spend a full day with them, that, that's a red flag. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do, it's like I've talked to this dude eight hours today. The last thing I want to do is spend even more time with him afterwards, you know, for another couple hours and enjoy a cocktail with them, you know. You really have to be able to enjoy being around them. You know, when you travel, you know, your travel companion, whoever it may be, you really have to just enjoy their personality.
0: I mean, I think it goes along with any relationship. I think that's one reason that we're successful with ours. Everybody's like, what do you guys fight about? And it's like nothing. It's like well, we literally talk and spend almost every hour yeah. together. We disagree.
1: Um, but Yeah, we, we disagree. Don't. Of course. Yeah. We Enjoy we, each other's presence. Yeah.
2: And you're going to have those disagreements, you know, I mean, I I have several friends kind of like y'all that you spend a lot of time with, you talk with on a daily basis. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about even doing podcasts together, you know, because mm-hmm. literally y'all talk so much. I mean, some of the, the conversations that you have are so funny, they need to be recorded you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you need, and you need to share them with the world.
0: That's, know? that's how this started off. We were, we were at lunch one day
1: and we were like, why don't we record these conversations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Having way too many valuable and funny conversations, not to be recording audio or video.
2: When y'all were just talking about like taking the trip to Midland, you know, I mean, instead of taking the hour flight, you know, get on the car eight hours you know, record the whole damn conversation because, you know, it's bound, you know, hour four or five. You're going to get <laughs> she, so deep in this conversation. It gets a little wild. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You might have to edit it a few times. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's definitely, that's the way to go.
1: That's too funny. <laughs> I, know, I
2: like what y'all are doing though, you know, with this podcast, it's it gives a lot of people the opportunity to listen to these in the EMP space, make their own decisions, you know, especially like the startup deal. at it's not easy, you know, leaving a a safety net of a job and and branching out on your own and getting the more entrepreneurial type of spirit. It's definitely not easy. It gives the it gives people the the chance to listen to an hour of somebody's story, how they did it, you know, to be able to judge and make their own decisions whatever situation they may be in. You know what I like most about our
1: podcast is that you can go anywhere and get stories like that of people, you know, jumping out in entrepreneurship or whatever it may be, but there wasn't a medium for it for people specific to oil and gas. And so that's what I find the most interesting about the people that we have come on here and their stories is because never before has there been a platform where people can actually just get those stories from oil and gas. It's always been, you know, people from whatever tech industry, e-commerce, apparel, whatever it may be. So anyways, man, so you're executive vice president of land right now at Ruckus. Let's rewind it all the way back and I want to hear about you. You told me beforehand that you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So let's, let's get your story.
2: Man, we got enough time for that man, or what? I'm, dude, I've got a handle of whiskey <laughs> over there. We can break it yeah, open. I'm and... okay with that, man. It could get a little crazy. No, but yeah. So Tulsa, born and raised Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, back when it was the oil capital of the world at that time, second generation landman kind of followed the footsteps of my mom. And that's kind of how I got in this business, but to take it back even more, you know, I graduated high school, went to play college football in, in Western Kansas, did that for four years, played a lot of football, started all four years there as a freshman, you know, and at that point in time, I played so much of football. I mean, everybody asked me what I was going to do when I grew up, you know, it was like, I'm going to play football. <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm going to do. But the older you get, you know, the more uh, complex you that goal and that dream becomes, you know going to pro days, stuff like that. It's tough because there's a lot of talent out there. So, you know, I was probably a junior in college, really starting like, I mean, I got like a year and a half left of school. And then I'm kind of out on my own, you know, what the hell am I going to do with myself? I have no idea. And I kind of knew what my mom did growing up, knew she was in the oil and gas business, knew she was a land man, but really just never was that intrigued to ask a lot of questions, you know? So I was a junior. No, I was actually this was probably about a sophomore junior year, 2006, 2007 time frame. I started getting more intrigued, wanted to kind of figure out what what it, what it, was, what it was she did. So she spent most of her career as a landman in Tulsa, Oklahoma over 20 years, worked for a number of small EMP companies that would continuously get bought out every couple of years, you know. And so once she got then she ended up moving from Tulsa, to Dallas my senior year of high school her company got bought out by Kerr McGee so she moved to Dallas worked for Kerr McGee and then in 2005 time frame 2006 Kerr McGee got bought out by Anadarko so then she moved down to the woodlands joined Anadarko for a bit probably could have stayed there for a long time so this is about the time I became interested in what it was she did was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life you know so she actually was with Anadarko, I think not very long, because she came across an opportunity to branch out kind of on her own. And this is where this kind of goes. You know, she, she was with Anadarko, probably could have been, I mean, at this point in time, she's been in the industry close to 30 years. Probably could have stayed with Anadarko for a long time. But she decided she had an opportunity to kind of come across her on this startup E&P company called Leor Exploration. So it was actually with a guy that she had married my stepfather, Kitten Holiday, which was previously with Encana Oil and Gas. So she just Small company. Yeah, very small. <laughs> <laughs> so she decides she's going to take early retirement from Anadarko, kind of branch out and get with this company that pretty much has nothing, who's going to start up you know, something in Central Texas and see where it goes. So I really started kind of you know, posing a lot of questions to her, what it was she was doing, all this. And this was the time she left Anadarko. So she got this company. They worked with a series of geologists that had found an opportunity in central Texas, which was now a lot of people know of, called Amoruso Field. They started drilling wells. They, they stitched together. My mom was the VP of land and BD. and They stitched together 30,000, 35,000 acres, started drilling wells. And this was strictly exploration at this point in time. You know, not a, not a lot of people do this anymore. So this was a 2006 timeframe and she's drilling wells, drilling these deep Bozier wells down to 19, 20,000 feet, super high pressure gas wells. And I'm like, so what are these wells producing? She's like anywhere between the IP is 70 to hundred million cubic or hundred million cubic feet a day. And at that time at point, I didn't know exactly how much that was, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, cool, man. So, I became more intrigued, kept following the progress of Leor. Well, they ended up drilling a number of these wells. I mean, that's a substantial amount of gas, okay? And and at this point in time in 2000, late 2006, early 2007, gas prices kept climbing, you know, got up to what, 12, 13 dollars or so in MCF. So, when these wells, they, you know, the first couple wells that they drilled, they would drill one, you know, maybe on the east side of the property. Okay, well, we got something here, go to the west side, start delineating over there, you know, trying to prove it up that way they would have some puds or probables all over their acreage position. So they drilled these wells and every one of them were just a, like a home run success, you know? So I think they I can't remember how many wells they drilled, but at this point in time, just shortly before this, as they were sticking the, stitching the acreage position back together, kitten holiday, my stepdad had left in He was kind of leading the business unit of Texas for in came over and became the president of the exploration before they drilled these wells. So, he knew exactly what kind of Encana was looking for at that point in time. Shortly after, I think they drilled five, six wells. They sold 15% of the deal to Encana and then sold another 35% a few months later to become equal partners at 50-50, and then a few months later sold out completely, and all three transactions equaled about $5.3 billion. and this was in 2007 when gas prices were, you know, over $12, you know, so and you, and at that point in time, you didn't really see a lot of transactions, you know, with over $5 billion.
0: Yeah, there so, still haven't been that many of them.
2: No, no, I mean, you, you don't. I mean, you, you see the slowdown, you know, the ones that when the Delaware picked up in 16, it was like it was normal for something to be over $2 billion. You know, you saw a lot of transactions, but especially back in the mid 2000s. He didn't see a lot. And so that's what really caught my eye. You know, she, she took a chance. My mother took a chance, left Anadarko to start to kind of join this EMP that could have went in a year belly up, you know, and then she would have been an older landman looking for a position again. Anadarko may have took her back. Maybe not, you know. Can your mother come on our podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> she most certainly can because she probably has some better stories than yeah. <laughs> So, for real, it was eye opening for me. You know, at this point in time, I was literally sitting, you know, at my house in Hayes, Kansas, in the middle of nowhere, thinking, I mean, I kind of want to give this a shot. You know, I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in this industry. And, you know, at this point in time, I may play football, I may not. I really don't know what I want to do. But that was a huge transaction. And pretty much, you know, my mom's stepdad kind of built it from the grassroots. And what was funny it was, you know, my stepdad came over from Encana. And the moral of that story, the leor deal. So they sold it, you know, the conglomerate three times for $5.3 billion or something like that. And six months later, that's when gas prices collapsed mm-hmm. under $2 an MCF, you know. And I always think back, like, what the hell was Encana thinking at like that point in time, you know? <laughs> They're like, we bought super high. Six months later, the market completely falls out of the bottom. And now you have $2 gas. You know, somebody got fired over there. That's all I'm saying. saying. But, and it was funny. I was telling this story to a guy I was doing business with up in, because it's a fascinating story. And I was telling a guy that I did some business with up in Denver, very wealthy guy. I was telling him this. And when I got to the, the billion number, he was like, billion? And I was like, yeah. He goes, what's their yacht's name? I was like A pardon me. He's like their yacht. What did they name it? And I was like, just off the off my cusp. I was like, sell high, because that's exactly what they did. <laughs> Sold at the top of the market, and it fell through. But that was great. So then, you know, I decided I actually got with my mom at that point in time and wanted to do an internship. Came down 2009 timeframe to do an internship. They had Leorth Two started up. They were doing some stuff with Sampson down in Southeast Texas, Chambers County area. And so did an internship down there for about four months with a land broker. And that's kind of how I got interested in this. You know, my first deal that I did as a landman, I came down still in college, doing over the summer type work, started out in-house, you know, pushing some paper. The president of the broker, this was with Genesis Land. He took me out to Southeast Texas. and was like, well, let's go buy some leases. So the first time I really got to go meet with some landowners, buy some leases, you know, One of the first landowners I met met with, it was probably 12, 12.30 in the afternoon, I meet with him, and he's like, would you like a drink? I was like, sure, you know. Brings over some whiskey, pours a glass, and I sit there across the table and literally shoot the shit with him for two hours, drinking some bourbon, and I'm like, man, I think I can get into this, you know? I was like, hell yeah, this is my style. This is my cup of tea right here. (laughs) So, you know, did that the rest of the summer, went back to school, finished my uh, senior year ball, and played some arena ball after that, realized that you know, I wasn't going to make any money at this and called up my broker that I did my internship with. I was like, hey, man, you got any work? And he was like, I do. I'm running this project right now. We're trying to stitch together 50,000 acres in East Texas. Come on down to Atlanta, Texas. I was like, I mean, I'll, I'll Google map that, I guess, but I don't really know where <laughs> that is. And literally the next day, packed my shit up at my house, loaded my truck. I was at my dad's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, packed my shit up, Went to East Texas for two years and stayed in the Best Western in Atlanta, Texas. It was the worst time I've ever had. I mean, that town is a disaster, all right, to say the least.
0: <laughs> What's it close to? Because I have it's, no clue. It's
2: about 30, 30 minutes from Texarkana. Okay? okay. It's a dry county. So you're putting a bunch of oh, landmen fine. in a hotel doing a project in a dry county. So we literally had to drive 15, 20 minutes to the nearest liquor store. And so,
1: yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah, I mean, I've been all over Texas, and I don't know where Atlanta's at.
2: That's exactly. <laughs> no, nobody does, all right? So Cass County is where we were doing this with this Canadian company stitching together 50,000 acres. You know, I, the first time I realized I was any good at this was this company that we were doing a deal with in East Texas that we were stitching together was 50,000 acres for. Money got tight for them, and our broker, we were running 30 landmen or so in this county. They laid a bunch of people off. And my broker pulls me aside and he's like, we're going to keep two people I and mean, you're one of them. And I was like, oh, well, OK, sure. You know, and I was still young at this point in time. So we, we decided we stayed another probably half a year out there doing this. My wife was working for Noble at this point in time back in Houston. So I'd travel back and forth on the weekends, stay with her and decided like two years in, cut my teeth, pulling books in the courthouse, running title. It was great. Learned a lot but I was ready to be out of the field. You know, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And so at this point in time, I actually, you know, my undergrad was in business, just a generic business degree when I was playing ball. That seemed to be the easiest at that point in time. So, well, I wanted to get in the house, but like, you know, how do I do that? You know, a lot, a lot of people, not a lot of, you know, big companies hiring landmen out of the field. They should, but they don't, you know, they want to hire them from some type of PLM degree, OU, Texas tech, you know, something like that. And so, I actually called my mom. I was like, you got any contacts that I can, you know, go sit with, try to pitch myself to him. So she hit, hooks me up with the land manager at Anadarko. I go to Anadarko and this is what really kind of defined my career in this industry. I go and sit with this guy and I'm literally just shooting the shit with him for a little while. And all of a sudden he's like, man, I like you a lot. I think you do really well here, but I can't hire you. And I'm like, well, why is that? And he goes, cause you don't have a PLM degree. And I'm like, Really? You're going to shut me down. You think I could do a good job here, but you're going to shut me down because I don't have a degree to fall back on, you know? And he's like, exactly. He's like, they made a policy where they usually don't hire any PLMs or landmen without JDs. So I was like, yeah, I, that was just a shock to me. You know, I thought I had this job.
1: Why do, do you think that is? I come from a family of landmen and they bitch about this all the time that when companies hire, you know, landmen in house, that it's always some you know fresh grad out of high or out of college that can't run title properly, and you know both you know my dad and my uncles you know mm-hmm. came out of the field, so you know they have that same mentality. Why, why do you think that that they, is?
2: What I was told was that they do this because if they hire you, you know they really you know they're trusting your resume, they're trusting whatever you tell them, you know. So if you go in there and you completely shit the bed, that they Have something to fall back on. It's like, Mm. hey, man, he had a PLM, he was an attorney, you know. They have something they can fall back on. That way, it doesn't make them look too bad. Yeah, that's kind of what I was always told. That makes
1: sense. I've never thought about it like that. You know, I mean, because they they
2: have proper schooling and and these degrees at these schools have gotten better and better. But at the end of the day, I mean, I've hired a lot of people in my career at this point in time, and I normally will not hire anybody that doesn't have field experience. I mean, Mm -hmm. because nothing beats it. To when you're living in a hotel, running title, drafting your own leases, pulling books, researching, and trying to chain title together—you know—you don't get that type of experience in school. Yeah, and so it's a big difference.
1: I did a two-week stint as a landman,
2: oh, running yeah, title in
1: courthouses, and I was like, "Fuck this! I'm going back yeah. out to the <laughs> rigs. That's my type of work." A lot, <laughs> a lot
2: of people say that too. They're like, "What the hell am I chaining this title together?" You know? But it's—it's it's very, so, it's, it's very it, tedious. It's very tedious, and the more you get into things like. And East Texas, I think, is some of the worst title that I've ever come across in my career. And so it becomes interesting whenever you go meet with somebody to try to buy a lease and you know more about their family history than they do. You know? <laughs> and so you're educating them on their family background and they're like, oh, no shit. <laughs> so it, it's, it's interesting. But when I got told that from this land manager at Anadarko, you know, I was seriously just shell shocked. I was like, really? I was like, well, how, you know, are all these majors going to be like this? I don't know. I ended up coming across a position with Oxy They hired me as a contractor to kind of give me a test run. You know, at this point in time, I was 26 years old. Finally got a job with Oxy working in the land department in 2012. They, it was a really active year for them. I mean, probably I feel like one of the most active, at least in the last decade, they made a big acquisition in the Northeast Marcellus shell. I started working on that, doing a big due diligence project once we were finished with that, they made another acquisition up in North Bakken. I, made, I did due diligence on that and got transferred down to Eagleford and then worked some of the Permian. So I literally worked, you know, some of the largest basins in the U.S. on my, at my stint at Oxy. And to be honest, I loved Oxy. The people there, the personnel were great. All my colleagues have nothing but good things to say about them. Well, then we come down to this story. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in my office at Oxy, and I get a call from my old broker at Genesis Land. And he calls me, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing working. He's like, well, you got some time to go play some golf? I was like, sure. He's like, I have this company, this startup E&P company backed by Kane Anderson. You know, they're just starting out. One, one's a guy is a, a geologist from Common Resources. The other guy's an engineer back old Exxon guy and they're starting a cmp company they asked me to be their land manager and he's like but you know i got my own thing going it's great so i threw your name in the bucket and i was like oh (laughs) well thank you you know he's like so let's go play some golf and meet them and i was like okay so we put together a golf game and i'm you know didn't even really hit me until i started playing golf i'm like this is gonna be like it's just okay it's just playing golf it's just a casual golf game with a couple guys you know get there it literally turned into a four hour interview. It was the longest interview playing golf. And at that point in time I wasn't that great at golf. So it was turned into <laughs> the longest interview of my life. And I'm just like, shit, man, what are they gonna think? You know, but I ended up pitching, you know. I took a leap of faith here. At this point I wasn't gonna leave Oxy, you know. I didn't know if they were gonna if they wanted me or not. But during the whole game, you know, I I was 26, I didn't have that much experience in this industry at that point in time. I had some great field experience, had some good operations experience. You know, I was only at Oxy for eight months and would have stayed there for a long time. Loved it. And I think I did a great job there. But I still didn't have that much experience. And I did but I pitched myself to them, you know. I was like, I'm young, you know, whatever you need done, because they were telling me exactly what they planned on doing and what they were gonna need done. And I was like, whatever y'all it is that you need done, I can do and I'll find a way to do it. My whole family, you know, I have a mom that was a landman. My stepdad was a landman. My stepbrother is a landman. And we always joked at one time, we are like, we should start our own EMP company. And my mom was like, I think we're going to be a little heavy on the landman. You know, <laughs> I was like, ah, we can work with that. Not, not very diverse. <laughs> <laughs> but no, see, and then, you know, I was like, I, I, I got a lot of family in this industry. If I, if I need help, I can probably figure it out. You know, I'm, I, I got sources that I can reach out to, you know. So I was pitching myself to them. And all of a sudden, like a week later, you know, the guy calls me and's like, we'd like to, you know, give you a shot, six month contract. And I was like, damn, man, like another contract. Like, you know, what if I just, what if I just turd, I'm a big turd to come in there. And then six months (laughs) after I'm out on the streets again, you know, like, and I was leaving a good thing at Oxy. So it was definitely a risk reward deal that I had Away my pros and cons, try to figure out what was going to be best for me. Because at this point in time, I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I was young you know, I consulted my mom. She was like, I just don't want you to be, you know, set up for failure here. You know I mean? It's going to be a lot of responsibilities. And I was like, well, that doesn't help. But <laughs> so I kind of, I just weighed my options and I was like, you know, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. You know, I feel like I'm a pretty good landman. And you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll find a job somewhere else, you know? So I took the jump, joined them. And it was funny. The first day that I go into to work with them, the president comes and slaps the saltwater disposal agreement on my desk. And was like, I need you to redo this. And I gave me like a little piece of legal pad with some bullets on it. it. was like, this is what we want inserted into that. I'm sitting there. Like, I've never seen one of these things in my life. Like what, what am I supposed to do with this SWD agreement? You know, because normally, especially at oxy, you know, I go from field doing record title leasing, oxy i'm doing more due diligence and not so much on the you know disposal and that type of operation side it's more like getting the land ready to be drilled and so i'm like all right well i guess i'll figure this out so i literally read through that agreement probably like 25 times really you know i mean that's what i was good at doing was reading through things comprehending them and trying to point out the important parts of an agreement you know so my background i really don't have any law background but and at that point, he didn't tell me I could work with, with their counsel until like a week later. I've already done dives <laughs> through this agreement, inserted a lot of things, how I would do it, you know. And I've gotten so much better with actually being able to write legal gibberish, you know. But a week later, I'm like, oh, now I can work with an attorney and, you know, they can do most of this for me. That makes complete sense. But I had to give it to an attorney <laughs> of what I've already done. And I'm like, oh, please don't laugh, you know. Like, but literally the first time. You I mean, should have
1: handed it to him like, here, I did your work for yeah, you. right? Exactly. <laughs>
2: But I like I sit down I mean I was like oh man this is how this job is going to be like I faced a lot of times at XOG a lot of times were tough I mean just because I was I was the only landman there I had a broker that I that I used from time to time I had a contract landman that worked for me but we were a small shop we ran lean backed by Kane Anderson and they're still around today so I mean they're doing it right you know you don't see a lot of PE funds last I mean this Well is they had like, a Tomball? Yeah, so it's like okay. kind of spring Cypress, Tomball area. Yeah, right yeah. Off like Cyprus. I used
0: to drive past that office every day on the way to office at yep. GDS. Yeah,
2: yeah. so that's exactly where I worked. I worked with them. I ended up staying there for four and a half years. They're mm-hmm. still around, so they're on year seven now. You know, and The interesting thing about that, they're obviously not with Kane Anderson anymore because the way the PE funds work. They were in one of the funds at Kane Anderson. Another company hit it really big in that fund. Ken Anderson wanted to close down that fund, and so we ended up searching out another private equity firm in Dallas that became a really good fit for us called PetroCap. So we ended up switching over to them, continuing doing the work. XOG was more like a – they were onshore Gulf Coast company down south of Houston, Brazoria County. We bought a big ConocoPhillips asset down there, managed a huge midstream asset. Mostly it was plug and old, the legacy wells back recompleting them, optimizing operations, that type of deal, living, trying to live out of cash flow as much as possible. Really good experience. I mean, I think that's really paved the way for my career here. I, I worked with a day in, day out with an, with, a, with a really great seasoned engineer and a seasoned geologist. Really at that point in time saw the business from the grassroots, how everything kind of was pieced together and not just from the land side. You know, from grassroots on, on leasing, putting the land together, working out any type of drilling contracts, and then taking everything to market. And so I saw it from point A to like point C at that point in time, you know. And, so, and it was great. We grew some, but at the end of the day, it was, it was just too slow for me. Got to probably my hand in the cookie jar of every piece of the business that you could. And I, I probably owe them everything in my career. But I decided about halfway through XOG, or yeah, about halfway through XOG, I decided that that Inadarko thing was still kind of playing in my head, like, you don't have a PLM, you don't have this, you know, we can't hire you. And so I decided to go back to school, and I didn't want to go to law school. And so I went to the University of Tulsa to get my Master's of Energy Business. It was pretty much an MBA, pretty much strictly focused in energy, EMP, renewables on a global scale had a really good curriculum. So started that program and pretty much my life changed forever. We went to this, I went to my first residency. They do like two residencies throughout the whole program. You meet everybody, faculty, all your colleagues and students that you're in the program with. And I was in my first one and I'm sitting in this residency seminar and we're going around the room. Everybody's introducing each other and this guy stands up and his name was Avi Merman. And he was the CEO of Lillis Energy at that point in time. You know, and I was like, who is this guy? You know, I mean, he, didn't, he was from New York. Didn't look like everybody else in the room, you know. But I ended up talking to him at the bar after the seminar. We really hit it off. He's a great dude. Very smart. Kind of just inherited this Lillis Energy company that was coming over. He was actually the interim CEO that took over from Recovery Energy that had some financial issues. And Avi worked for one of the largest investors of recovery. So the guy, the largest investor put him in the place of the interim CEO position at Lillis at that time to take over. Well, he was, he was a mastermind, never worked energy before, but the guy had a leadership ability that is just slim to none. He could get people motivated to do whatever he wanted. And you know, as the CEO. I mean, that's the biggest deal is, is getting people motivated, putting the right people in place to do the job. And this guy was brilliant really brilliant. And so I had talked to him and he was just talking about they own, They own like 20,000 acres in the DJ. They're looking for their entrance into the DJ and they're about to prob- possibly close on a deal in the DJ of like 2000 acres a really small acquisition that they were going to do. So this was another chance where I had a, I ended up keeping up with him. He wanted me to do some consultant work. And then first thing was, it was like, as soon as we got back from the seminar, he hits me up and he's like, Hey, we just we closed on this acquisition in West Texas. We got like 2,000 acres. It's HBP Legacy Gas stuff. But we're getting pressure from our shareholders to try to put a rig out there and drill a well, see what we got before we put too much land together. You know, he's like, can you find me a hot rig? Because this was right around. This was summer of 16. Delaware was blowing up. Hot rigs were few and far between. A lot of rigs were being stacked, and trying to people were trying to pull rigs out of you know a stacked yard and having problems with it. So he was like, can you find me a hot rig? Well, it just so happened. We just got through drilling this well in Brazoria County for XOG from Big E was the rig. And so they had just left. And I remember the guy telling me, like, we're taking this rig out to West Texas. We don't have a home for it yet. Well, Avi had posted in this. I was in the same class with him in this fall of 16. He had posted in this discussion board. He goes, hey, guys, to the whole class. He's like, I'm looking for a hot rig. My current operations guys can't find one. Whoever can find me one, I'll give you twenty five thousand dollars. And I was like, I read it, and I was like, shit. Like, I my phone. I'm like, hold on. I so I call, I called this rig foreman. I'm like, hey, from Big E. And I was like, hey, you guys still got that rig? And he was like, yeah, we do. We're looking to place it. And I go, I think I might have you something. <laughs> and literally in two weeks, that rig was contracted with Lillis to drill this well. Hell yeah! So you get that twenty five so G's. Fuck yeah! 000. That's what I'm talking about. Like, Hell yeah! <laughs> I was like, all right. And so, you know, he's pretty impressed. I was able to turn it really fast. And he's like, man, why don't you just come work for me? And I was like, okay, let's talk, you know. And at this point in time, I've been with XOG for a long time. I owe those guys everything, but it was just slow. I really wanted to get back into more unconventional type zones, something busy. You know, the Delaware was blowing up. Hadn't been out there in a while. We were strictly focused at XOG, more Gulf Coast and East Texas. And the work was just slowing down. You know, the, the market wasn't in the best shape at this point in time, late 15, early 16. So it just, it was in the gutter. So this was, I had a really big decision to try to make, you know, the market's depressed at this time. Should I jump ship or should I kind of stay in the safety net? Cause I knew XOG was going to stay around for a little bit, but at the same time, I knew I could, I had much more potential at this, at Lillis because, you know, the CEO was telling me like, you know, we just acquired this 2000 acre field. We want to grow it to 20,000. We want to delineate certain benches and sell it. You know, it's like a, maybe an 18 month gig. So I was like, all right. So I ended up joining in December 1st, 2016. First task I come on, first again, like I don't know what it is, but every time I start a new job, the first day I just get like beat up with something that's impossible, <laughs> you know, and I don't get it. So, first day, December 1st, 2016. Avi calls me and he's like, "Hey, you know that 20,000 acres I was telling you about in DJ?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah I'm aware. And he was like, "Well, we want to we want to just get rid of it, divest it by the end of the first quarter of 17." So it's December 1st, 2016. He wants me to sell this asset by March 31st, 2017. And I'm like, "Okay. Well, let me let me like kind of look into this and figure some stuff out, you know." I start diving into it. They they don't even know what they have. You know, this is my like first week on the job. They don't even know what they have. We're at this point in time, we're stitching together our management team. And so I literally had to hire a broker up in Denver to do due diligence on my own asset before (laughs) I could sell it because I didn't know what I had. It started out as a hundred thousand acres. They had a hundred thousand acres at one time, this recovery energy company. And throughout... Not doing anything with it. Some stuff was HBP, but they never did anything with it. They never drilled a well. They didn't do anything with it. So they lost a bunch of acreage, got down to about 17,000 acres. They lost a lot. A lot of wasted money. Well, so okay, so I did do diligence on it, for, and I had a very limited time. The broker that I used was not happy with it. Because I'm like, listen, you guys got like three weeks. I need to know exactly what I have. He's like, you want us to go through 100,000? I don't think it's 100,000 acres, all right? Like, He's like, you want us to do this in three weeks? I'm like, yeah, I do. That's what you got to do. <laughs> you know? And so and they, they came through, man. They really did. They hit a home run with it. And I closed this divestment on March 31st, 2017. And I don't know how it happened, but we made it happen. And so we divested of the DJ assets to strictly focus Del- on our core Delaware asset. And at this point in time, we stitched together our management team. We had Brennan Short, which was our COO, that was hired on. Ariella Fuchs was our general counsel. Mary Hughes is our geologist, which is the same management team that we have today at Ruckus. You know, at Lillis, like I said, we had 2,000 acres. The matter of, and at this point in time, when I joined, Lillis was trading on the OTC market at like $1.50, had about a 3 to $4 million market cap. Our team collectively got together mid-December, early January of 17, put together a strategy plan of growing this asset up to about 20,000 acres. Let's drill 12 wells and monetize it at the end of 17. That was a far stretch, okay? But as I told you before, Avi Merman, he, he was a madman, but he was a mastermind. Uh, the guy could really get people motivated to do things. We put together this plan, and he reminded of this plan every day okay putting together 20,000 acres in the heat of the Delaware is no easy task all right and I I mean normally I would need a couple years to do this we're on a position kind of just by RSP Permian most of our stuff was contiguous here and but we're pushing the limits of the eastern edge of the Delaware basin and on on our acreage position we had like two deep gas wells that was holding 2,000 acres no, i mean the closest horizontal wolf camp well was maybe eight to ten miles west in 11 county so we didn't really know how far this basin stretched out we we were pretty positive that this thinned out to the east so we did our science grew the position started drilling wells so by the end of 17 we we grew we had about twenty thousand acres drilled 12 successful wells wolf camp drilled some wolf camps and bone springs like Wolf Camp A and B wells. And every well we drilled was a success, which was crazy. We did not anticipate this, but That's our wild. our COO, Brennan Short, was really good at what he did. He was able, we had a lot of vertical wells that were not producing on our asset. He was able to kind of go in, analyze the casing program. And we were able to save a couple million dollars in CapEx by plugging those wells back, coming up, cutting a window, and laying the lateral down. So the team meshed really well together. We we did we did some really good things at Lilis. In the matter of sixteen months, we grew the company. Started out like I said, three four million, and we were over five hundred and fifty million market cap at this point in time. Wow! Just by the wells we did. And what, what span of time was that? About fourteen to sixteen months. Damn! So by the end <laughs> of really like seventeen, early eighteen,
0: and that was oh, geez, That was the market
2: value. What's that? Yeah, market. Yeah, market cap. Okay. Fully diluted basis, our market cap was a little over five hundred and fifty million. So, were you guys already
0: OTC when you came in, or were you part of that process?
2: And so, we were already OTC when we came in because this was kind of a recovery, and this is okay. why I look at like you know I look at Ruckus kind of like as my third startup. I feel like Lilith was a startup, XOG definitely startup. Lilith, they were an established company, but all the management got let go. Yeah. We came in the management team of Lilith got stitched together, and we I mean we had. Some acreage to play with, but we didn't think it was very good. You know, we we got out of the DJ, put everything into the Delaware, and we had two thousand acres to play with. And we kind of back, went back and forth on, okay, are we going to grow this acreage first? Are we going to drill a well to see what we have before we spend a lot of money on acreage because acreage prices were already crazy in this area, into sixteen, early seventeen. Mm-hmm. In the matter of eight months, I went from buy, being able to buy leases at probably a thousand dollars an acre to I couldn't buy anything under 10000 an acre in a matter of eight months. I mean, the yeah. place was going crazy. So we were directly contiguous to RSP. Felix was to our south. Well, we knew what RSP was trading at on a per acre basis on, on the market. So we ended up transferring over to the NYSE. We, we did some good things, got our price up, got our documents in order, and was able to go from the OTC to the NYSE. So we did this mid seventeen which helped our company out a lot. And for those
0: who are not listening or familiar with that space, what was the, why do you go from OTC to New York Stock Exchange?
2: Well, so like for example, the or Lillis energy, formerly recovery energy, they were actually on the NYSE at first. They missed a lot of filings. And delisted. They got delisted you know. to the OTC which is really just you know it's OTC is over the counter trading
1: had, had Jordan Belfort trying to fucking yeah, shuffle yeah. their stock yeah. to people
2: exactly <laughs> exactly so and that's pretty much what that is so in order to go from the OTC back to the NYSE or the Nasdaq you really have to get your documents back in order you have to meet certain deadlines you have to prove to the NYSE and the Nasdaq commissions that you're capable of not getting delisted again you know and so it was a process at first we actually it was funny by March of Seventeen, we got uplisted to the Nasdaq. We really wanted to be on the NYSE because Nasdaq was more Nasdaq was more the tech trading space. Mm-hmm. NYSE was more for the EMP space, and so we wanted to be on the NYSE. NYSE hadn't approved our application yet, so we got uplisted to Nasdaq. Went to New York, party, did the bell ringing at Nasdaq, <laughs> and then literally two months later. We got approved by the NYSE, and they were like, "Well, why don't you come ring the bell too?" We're like, "Okay, see you." Now, we're gonna go back to New York. <laughs> so we, you you, know, you know, ring right, two bells. I right? right. rang two bells in one year. Is crazy. Man, no loyalty. No, so I know. just left <laughs> left
1: the Nasdaq <laughs> just like that. Exactly. <laughs> they got dumped pretty
2: quick. But no, it was it was it was a lot of uh, good experience at Lillis. What are the What
0: are the requirements to listed on the NYSE as an EMP?
2: EMP, I mean, I'm not – my financial background is not as strong as it should be, you know. I mean –
1: Having to go through an S1 filing is quite the – I mean, just legal fees alone to do that. You're running up in the millions.
2: It's it's mostly your S1 filings and stuff like that that you have to have in order. And and really, it's your financial capability. What's your liquidity to make sure that you're just not going to completely, you know – destroy it when you get listed up you know yeah. bankruptcy stuff like that so your financials really have to be in order which ours weren't when we first started but our cfo did some good things at Lilis and got our financials in order and getting up listed to the nasdaq and the NYSE was you know mostly kudos to him so yeah
0: i've seen i've seen a couple different stories of emps that literally go out and raise money and go public from day one before they have any assets which i find extremely interesting that that's even possible
2: well so that's true. And we actually had a chance to do that with ruckus. We didn't, we live in the year and a half life on the public scene was just has its pros and cons. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a lot of work. I literally had to hire a landman to help me keep up with the 10 K's and the Qs that we had to do every quarter. And then the annual filings and the proxies, mm-hmm. because literally those things are, you know, a couple hundred pages that we just have to go through and dice out exactly, you know, what our acreage count is, how much is, HBP, how much is undeveloped and improbable and all this. So, we, it was a lot of work, stuff that I really didn't want to have to deal with at that time. So, there's just like,
1: I mean, it seems like there's nothing fun about, you know, being part of a, a team that's publicly traded. Just there's so much stress and so many eyes looking at you that, I mean, not that you're doing, you know, if they weren't looking at you, that you'd be doing anything, you know, that's shady. But it's yeah. just, I mean, just the filing and administrative that goes into that is there's just so, crazy.
2: There's So many regulations, mm-hmm. you know. And to be honest, before I started at Lillis, I didn't have any gray hair, and by the time I finished, it all came to that. <laughs> literally. It was it was stre- it was a stressful job. Just being, you know, exactly precise on mm-hmm. what you're going to put in your filings with the acreage, and when you start buying a lot of acreage out like, you know, in a short amount of time. It's, you know, I mean, should I put in there 14,667 or is it 68? Like you want to be on point because your records are going to get audited at some point, you know? Yeah. So I was always trying extremely vague and trying to do approximately because, you know, you just never know when you start buying a lot of acreage. Your acreage, you know, count gets extremely high. It could be, you know, there could be a discrepancy of, you know, five to a hundred acres. You know, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of success doing it in a short amount of time at the end of 17. So our goal was always to monetize at the end of 17, you know, our, our company, our model was kind of built to do something quick and turn it in terms of the financial aspect. So our, our, our model wasn't built to go long, but you know, at the end of 17, our management and and directors kind of didn't see eye to eye. They wanted to kind of go long. So we, you know, it was a civil relationship. We agreed to disagree the whole management team minus our CFO left and then the chairman at that point in time became the ceo so the five of us left and started ruckus in may
0: so those guys stayed on to to kind of go along and you guys left to kind of do your own thing exactly how does that work when you guys took it from pretty much nothing to what like a half a billion dollar market cap yeah
2: so i mean so
0: what would you just sell off shares and everybody cashes out and then you go do thing.
2: exactly yeah so it was almost like we sold but we didn't sell you know we kind of wanted to stay on, but we didn't. I mean, we just, I mean, like I said, we all read the writing on the wall. We didn't think that the company was built. The people there now have done good things and have been able to be stable and and, and keep drilling wells and, and grow the asset. There was a lot of development. We delineated a lot throughout 17. So there was a lot of development to be done and to be had. So they're doing good things at it now, but our management team just We didn't want to do that. You know, we didn't want to stay on. We did not want to deal with the the public scene and, and just keep, you know, running two to three rigs and trying to hold these leases. We wanted, our goal was to be able to try to find a bigger company to come in and fill that void, you know, to do what we didn't want to have to do. Our company wasn't built for that. I always have ran a lean shop, same as my engineer, same as our geology. We usually had, you know, maybe one to two other people that would help us. You know, we didn't have a complete huge staff, and where our gna was out of control you know we, we ran lean and not everybody on our team did that you know besides the, the core that we're with now so you know we decided all to kind of leave we left separately but stayed in contact and and figured we like so and how ruckus Energy kind of came to we were in one of these meetings in 17 and like i said i go back to avi merman he's a wild guy super grateful everything he tells you is, you know he's going to stick to and we were in this meeting had a lot of success drilled some few some few good wells and we were talking and somehow it got brought up and he was like you know we were doing some really crazy things and he was like you know number two we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna call it lillis we're gonna call it ruckus because we do nothing but bring the fucking ruckus that's <laughs> what he said i was like yeah, i like it, you down know? With it. <laughs> so you know and that, and that kind of stuck you know at first we were just like ah, yeah you know but it stuck with us we all liked it and literally every one of us you know i'm I'm younger, I'm, I'm 31, our, our general counsel's 36. We got a couple, in, in, and everybody else is in their 40s, early to late 40s, you know? So we're young, we're aggressive, we're extremely motivated. We have fun doing what we're doing together, and and that's kind of how Ruck has started. And so, you know, and as we were kind of leaving, when we go back to, you said, you were talking, Jacob, about a lot of these companies that, you know, from day one, these EMPs will start being public, you know, maybe they'll do like a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, which is a vehicle that they get the funding backed by another company or, or from an institution, but it's from day one. Like you enter into the SPAC agreement, management puts up a certain amount of funds, and then they have 12 months, 12 to 18 months, I believe, to actually find an acquisition. And before when you enter into the SPAC, you actually can't have any type of agreements in place. You know, supposedly you can do some negotiations on the side, you can't have any formal documents in place. Because and you're on a clock, you know. If you don't close anything within that twelve to maybe eighteen to twenty-four month time frame, the money you put in a management could be one, two million or whatever it is, it's gone. Stays with the institution, you know. So you have extremely high risk that if you can't find a deal, maybe the A and D market is not as solid as it once was. You know, it's it's high risk definitely, and you have to have faith in being able to find a deal. Maybe you know, have your eye on something that you think you can close. So and that's what a lot of companies do, then they'll, as soon as they'll be a private company, and as soon as they make that acquisition, they'll, they'll roll over and do an IPO. And so we actually contemplated something with that, with that ruckus at the beginning. And so, you know, I've done, I've done some private equity, I've done public, and we were on this, on this time around, we were trying to figure out what it was we were going to do, you know, because there's, there's pros and cons to every one of them, but we had a really good relationship with some of Lilith's, early investors some of the main investors which were some small institutions some private wealth and like i said you know we went from a 4 million dollar market cap to well over 550 got up to trading at like 615 a share from a dollar 50 so a lot of the early investors did extremely well you know in a short amount of time and so a lot of those investors are rolling over with us on ruckus You know, we didn't want to do private equity. We like a lot of the the PE guys. They're great, fun to do business with, smart, and they make good partners because, you know, they've been in this space for a long time and they can help you in critical times to make the strategic decisions that you need to, right? But at the same time, we just, you know, we, the background on our management team was hot at this point in time because we just came off and done a crazy thing on the public market that a lot, nobody really has done. And then shortly after we left, our SP block sold to Concho for a crazy number, you know, and that was completely offsetting ours when people would tell us that we were going to drill some shit wells and it was never going to amount to anything. <laughs> and so these wells turned out fantastic. Our offset competition was selling for a huge multiple in the Delaware. And so it turned out that we really did have something. And we had a lot of heat on our management team that in a good light, a lot of people wanted to invest into us and we were able to bring over the group of individuals into ruckus to keep it going.
0: So we were kind of talking a little bit before the mic, you know, we've got some decisions to make. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe the terms and the relationship working with some of these private investors as compared to the larger, you know, PE shops?
2: Yeah. And, you know, it all, it all, it's all different. You know, most of the PE shops, you're going to have similar terms to the agreement. You know, they'll come in they'll take 95 to 98% of your company, but they're going to, you know, supply all the funds. Most of the time management will still contribute a small amount, you know, whatever that may be. Usually it's a meaningful number is what they'll want you to contribute. Whatever meaningful is to your portfolio, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so it just depends, you know, it's, in a private equity light, you can really do good things. If you do well with them, you make them a lot of money. You know, you could do business with them for a long time. You can have the two, the three, the four, however many times you want to go and roll things into different funds. They are great partnerships. I feel like it's a little more, you're a little more handcuffed at times on decisions that you want to do to branch out to explore. And so it really just it differs, but with with the private individual wealth and maybe some institutions, whatever it may be, you'd normally have a little bit more flexibility. If, if management can put in more money and show that they're willing to take on a certain amount of risk as well with their own capital, you can usually get much more favorable terms because at the end of the day, you know, when it's your idea, you're doing the work, you're the technical side of the business, you know, I don't think it's fair to really give up 95 to 98% of the company, you know? So it really, it really just depends on the terms of the agreement. You usually can get more favorable terms, not with a large PE institution, you know, more private wealth will be more generous with you doing the business. You don't really have big brother looking over you. So you get to kind of explore your own path, make your own destiny type deal. So it really, it really depends on the, on the dynamics of the relationship between whoever it is, you know, like, and it goes back. I mean, there's pros and cons to a lot, you know, I experienced multiple situations when I was at Lillis on the public side of things, I was head of business development and land. And so, you know, on some meetings we would make a decision, all right, we need to branch out. All right. We, we got a large sum of capital. We need to deploy. We want to deploy most of it in our core asset, but, you know, it was my responsibility to kind of branch out, diversify our portfolio into somewhere else. Okay, so I wanted to buy some stuff in Reeves County. I wanted to buy some stuff over in another part of Winkler County or, or Ward County, right? And just trying to branch out away from where we were growing our block position. And it would come down to it. I'd find some good deals and we'd want to enter in, you know, to some type of term sheet. And then our directors would be like, no, you know, it's my, my hands were tied at that point in time. They're like, let's just, you know, it's good. I appreciate you bringing this to us, but let's, we let's deploy all our capital into this core asset, no branching out hundred percent right here. So it's like, what do you want me to do? You know, your hands are tied at times and, and they're going to be like that with anybody. Right. I mean, cause it, whether it be private equity capital raised on a public market, or private wealth individuals, you're going to have terms, you're going to have to be able to show these investors where the money's going, right? And with any type of project, projects takes different shapes and sizes all the time. Six months later, after a capital raise, you could decide that, you know, we want to branch out, we like something, you know, 10 miles away that we think is just as productive as where we're at now. You, know, you have to have that conversation, but the most important thing is you, you enter into a relationship with partners that you can have that discussion with, right? Mm-hmm. That someone's not just going to shut you down. They want to listen to your ideas. They want to know what you're capable of doing and what you want to do. So it's, it really comes down to the partnership.
1: Something that you know, David Ransom talked about was matching the right asset with the right capital provider. And he said, you know, it's easy to think like, hey, we just need to go to You need to go to Wall Street and and raise capital from private equity. That's what everybody's doing, raising hundreds of millions of dollars from private equity. But one, it doesn't always make sense for every asset, and it doesn't always make sense for every team as well. And we were talking to you about that before we got on the mic. And I think the thing is, is a lot of people just don't have access to private wealth. It's a lot harder to build out that network and build out those relationships, and it's a lot easier to get on Google and search private equity funds, energy there's and lot, yeah, and then them, yeah. yeah, and then you can start hunting them down and, and, you know, colding milling, whatever it may be. So that's the route a lot of people take. But, you know, it's I think the biggest thing about it is, you know, you gotta realize with private equity that they're essentially they're what they're looking to scale is management teams. They right. need they need personnel to go out and manage these assets. Right. They've got the capital. They've got the leverage. It doesn't matter if you've got the business plan, you've got the asset, you've got the technical ability, they've got the money, and I think At the end of the day, that's all that matters. So
2: they're they're, they're putting all their money at risk, you know, Mm -hmm. the ones that are putting that are really taking the most risk with their portfolio. And it was that's like what it was at XOG. You know, we were a management team managing an asset. You know, what I would say to what you said is that these, you know, kind of when you want to branch out, you want to take that leap of faith and leave your corporate job and you want to, you know, do something with a group of guys that you really like or something like that you know, more than likely, it's going to only make sense to, to, to go the private equity route at first. You know, you don't have to risk your own money to an extent. I mean, you you are a little bit, you know, you're trying to put up a meaningful number to to your portfolio and you got to risk it a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're being carried more with the private equity. It's a great relationship with most of these guys, like David Ransomwood, One Energy and Carnelium. They had a great relationship. When you're branching out you know, that's a great way to start, you know, and if, and if you have success and you can prove your track record and whatnot, that's when you can kind of, you know, demand more of the private wealth money Mm -hmm. and, you know, show what you can do with returns on multiple and invested capital. So, you know, it really just, it's whichever path you're taking, you know, private equity is more in the line of, you know, they're definitely, some of them are more risk averse, and they're wanting to, you know, acquire more PDP assets with current production stuff that they can fall back on with cash flow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard. And like Ruckus's deal, Ruckus's deal is, you know, this time around we want to do a little bit more exploration stuff that's a little more risky. It's really hard to find capital with private equity that is willing to take that risk. We're confident in our abilities. That even though it kind of looks more exploration, you know, it's it's more proven than what people think. And so it, that takes another, you know, realm of capital as well. It's you know who's gonna who's gonna risk the capital to to more of an extent than something that's completely a hundred percent proven with multiple benches. You know. Yeah. Do you guys have?
1: And you may not be able to talk on this, but do you guys have any balance of your portfolio of what you're allocating towards exploration and what you're allocating towards PDP as far as percentages? I know you said that you guys are wanting to go a little heavier on the exploration side. You know, what's what's the the weighted percentage of what you guys are looking to do
2: well so we actually have two assets we're working right now one's more exploration but not not so much i mean the only reason we're calling it exploration it does have proven targets on it so a lot of people wouldn't call it exploration but Mm -hmm. there are some zones that we're really intrigued in that we would probably identify as more exploration because you know wells we have to drill some pilot wells collect some data samples stuff like that but so we do have two assets. One's weighted more on PDP. It's a much larger asset. Well, this is ones that we're at. We don't actually have it now, but we're, this is something we're pursuing. And so it's, you know, it's completely different. I've been able to see this firsthand with trying to, you know, when you try to source capital for an asset that's completely undeveloped, no PDP, all your capitals is going to completely go into acreage at first until you have something put together from an acreage perspective to be able to drill your first well, to be able to drill that pilot well and collect your data that could take 6 to 8 months you know so it's a, it's a completely different aspect to raising capital ter- compared to this other PDP asset that we have that you know already has 3 to 4,000 5,000 barrels of production a day and room to expand
1: so i know we have a lot of listeners you know they may be in oil and gas but maybe they're not so familiar with the upstream process you know they could be midstream downstream we also have a lot of listeners outside of oil and gas can you explain some of the nuances and the benefits or first off what is pdp what is exploration you know Jake and I know that you know all your big returns come off the the risky exploration side and the pdp is more of your kind of core you know proven cash flow can you kind of explain from your perspective on, on both of those talk topics
2: yeah so you get the pdp which is which is actually proved developed producing assets I mean, it's something that somebody's already came in probably did some sort of exploration at some point in time exploration is generating from a completely undeveloped asset. You might have some local producing some PDP wells close by that you can actually put stitch together well control on and say, okay, maybe I have something similar as this asset, you know, five, 10 miles away. So that would be considered more exploration because you actually don't have any of your acreage producing, nor is it proven. So it has a pud proven undeveloped, or is it probable Which means, you know, it could be two miles away or possible. Mostly possible any reserve shop or no other EMP company is gonna give you value on a possible location. Mm -hmm. And so normally where expiration is almost after that. You have the one P being PDP and PUD, two being PUD and probable, three P being PUD probable and possible. And then you got pretty much expiration at that point in time, which means, you know you may have something here but from a reserve profile you don't have anything cuz no yeah. no reserve shop or anybody is going to give you credit for having something when you don't know it's mm-hmm. just a, you know it's a it's a hypothetical type deal and so so you
1: know essentially exploration is high risk high reward
2: exactly and that's the kind of the look we're taking at it you know high risk high reward you're being able to keep more of your company intact in terms of the equity Side of things mm-hmm. management puts up more of the money, but at the end of the day, you know, if with, with the certain well control and everything that you have going on, you know, surrounding your area, you don't really get too much exploration these days, you know, and, yeah. And, and there's a big difference between exploration and like wildcat, yeah, <laughs> like back in the good old days, yeah. I would have <laughs> loved to see and been a part of that, but. You don't really get too much wildcat going on anymore. Yeah, you know? yeah. Exploration, you know, we call it expor- exploration, but we're still being able to stitch together in our model offset production that's relatively close by, even though a lot of our portfolio of acreage is undeveloped. Mm-hmm. We're being able to show some type of return profile in the current reserves that we could possibly
1: have. Yeah, I always think what the old wildcatters back in the day would think of our term exploration. They're like, motherfuckers y'all aren't, <laughs> y'all aren't exploring shit.
2: Exactly. <laughs> man, exactly. Especially like the wildcatters East Texas. I mean, you're going out in an area that, you know, has never been developed within a hundred miles. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, They're just poking a hole and seeing, seeing, hole and what, seeing what, what comes out. Yep.
2: And that's the kind of science they did back in the day. You mm-hmm. know I mean? They would take, they would scoop up a, a barrel of oil in a bucket and take some samples of it. You know, now the technology, especially as you two know, you know, with tech, the technology in this industry has advanced so much. That's crazy. And, and no. it, it literally has put us in a position, these EMP companies, midstream, downstream, anything. The technology had advanced so much. It puts us in a position to we can do so much mm-hmm. and so little. Yep. For sure.
0: If you... I find your experience intriguing because you've, you've done the startup thing. You've done it with private money. You've done it in the public markets and you've you played around with the PE guys as well. If you were reset today, you only had your experience. You had no money, right? So you had nothing to bring to the table. So you couldn't put up a couple million going into private equity or anything like that, mm-hmm. but you wanted to build long-term wealth, which I think most people get into this for that. What would your strategy be?
2: Man, long-term wealth. And it really depends on what the market's telling you too. You know, you yeah. really have to listen to the market but me personally, I'm more of a risk taker.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I would probably try to sort, if I had my background and my experience that I could still carry, I would try to find some type of private wealth money that, you know, would just take their chances on me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd have no money to contribute, but, you know, let me work for you, you know, let me earn some sweat equity of some of some sort, you know, that's probably the route I would try to go. You know, it could take a long time though, you know, because, You got to find this individual, especially the oil and gas market is capital intensive, to Mm -hmm. say the least, you know. So it's a lot of capital. And you got to find maybe not one individual, but a group of individuals that's willing to compile a mass of money that you can do something with. You know, you find one individual and it's going to be hard to find somebody that's going to give you $20 You know, that's a high net worth (laughs) individual that's going to take a lot of chances. And normally he wants somebody else to share the risk with, you know. Mm -hmm. So me personally, I would try to probably find high net individuals that, you know, I could prove myself to, I would, you know, you'd almost have to have something to go into them with. And that's the, that's what comes down. You know, I've, I've listened to a lot of people branching out startups type conferences and stuff like this when I was younger. And a lot of, most of the private equity shops, the biggest question they get is, do you invest in, in an asset or do you invest in a management team? And a lot of them will answer it differently, but a lot of them answer it the same. Because especially if you're a management team that's kind of recently stitched together and doesn't really have a track record of growing an asset and divesting it and whatnot, they're mostly going to want to see a management team bring in an asset, right? Mm-hmm. Like saying, okay, we haven't, we haven't closed on this yet. We know that we can do good things with this by optimizing operations and, and exploring and, and doing whatever we can do, right? You bring the asset to the PE group and you're telling them, this is our asset. This, this asset's built for our management team. We can do that. A lot of PE firms, that's what they want to see. Some, you know, that have a proven track record that have been stitched together. Maybe it's a bunch of buddies that all worked at Exxon together and they're leaving Exxon. They're branching out. Some P.E. companies will invest in that management team to go find an asset, mm-hmm. right? And I've seen it where some comp- where some startups like that have, you know, had $100 million contributed to them, and they had didn't find an asset in a year. So they had to, you know, close it up, you know. And that's why a lot of P.E. companies don't. They rather invest into an asset rather than a management team because if you're bringing something, a full model built out, put together for a specific asset, they're more likely to invest in that because it's kind of turnkey for them. You yeah.
1: Know? You can deploy the capital quickly if you can close that deal. Whereas, right. I mean, David talked about this pretty extensively on, his, on our podcast where he raised over $2 million from friends and family yep. to go find an asset and burn through it all. And said so that was his tuition that he paid to yeah. learn how to do it the correct yeah, way. So Exactly.
2: <laughs> and, and I mean, it's, it's trial and error, you know, I mean, I've had, I failed in my life and it, it happens. Sometimes you don't make the right decisions, you know, and mm-hmm. but you learn from those decisions. And I think if you haven't failed, you definitely haven't lived and you haven't done it right, you know. But going back to your question, Jacob, I mean, me personally, I tend to take more risk. You know, I would try to source out some private wealth funding myself. But in order to term to build long-term capital for yourself, you know, I mean, the, one of the, the smartest decision would probably be to join – You know, some type of major, something that you can stick with for a long time, earn equity throughout your years, you have a safety net to fall back on, but it really just all depends on the individual, you know, what type of risk taker you are. You know, me personally, ever since I left Oxy, you know, and I started working with a bunch of individuals and was kind of doing my own thing, being my own boss. I was just like, man, I, I can't go back into to a corporate life and answer to somebody. You know, mm-hmm. I just really, I really thoroughly enjoy what I do. I thoroughly enjoy the people that I work with and that yeah. respect my values and my opinion on things. You know, so it's all about having the right. And as we were talking a little bit before this, it, it's all about having the right people that you surround yourself with. You know, and as we said, you know, if you can't have a beer or a drink with your partner after you spend all day in a meeting together at the end of the day and you just don't want to be around them, it's obviously not the right mesh. You know, you need to be able to enjoy the people you work with on a day in day out basis. And that's what we have at Ruckus. And it's fantastic. Like, I love seeing these people. I don't see these people enough. But at the end of the day, I love talking, you know, personal chat with them even after a long day of work discussion. Mm-hmm. And that and that's what really brings people together when and you enjoy doing what you do professionally around other those individuals. Yeah. I like that
1: response because You know, everyone tries to have this cookie cutter approach. You know, the right way to move forward in life, and it's not the same for everybody. Like, I can't look at most people in the eyes and tell them to do what I did. Yeah, go quit your two hundred thousand dollar a year job with your wife and three kids. You have no medical insurance. Like, yeah, fucking go for that. Like busted ass finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Break my finger right after. I'm like, man, this sucks. Not having medical insurance. So, but you should see him type like, he's like, he's like this I, I had to relearn how oh, yeah. to type, <laughs> but you know, a lot of people can't stomach that risk. I can just because it's my personality type to right. be able to, you know, take that type of risk. But, you know, everybody has their own path that they can take. So you can't just say what's the right path to take. And this applies to everybody. You really have to kind of look at yourself inside and see, you know, you as a person, what, what's right for you.
2: Well, and you're right there. I mean, there, like you said, there is no cookie cutter approach. Whenever I was trying to find the land manager for me at Lillis you know, I was searching, I had a lot of good guys that I worked with at Oxy that maybe I wanted to try to steal away. I found one guy that I was good friends with that I could get along with. And he was probably the most risk adverse person I know, you know, and it was a, it was a chore get me to try to get him to leave Oxy, you know, he, mm-hmm. he didn't want to. And he actually, the day he accepted the job was the day he told me he came to turn me down and that he was going to stay at Oxy. But it was that, we were having lunch and I continued to pitch it to him and I changed his mind on the spot, you know? Yeah. But, and not everybody has that decision, you know, cause he'd been there for, I don't know, six years or so. I mm-hmm. could have been there for a long time. He was a second generation land man as well, you know, but you're taking it in. And I, and I, and I had to be real with him. You know, I was like, you know, we have like a 16 month goal here, you know? And so hopefully we can make a lot of money doing it, but there's a good possibility that we make nothing, you know? And when you got to tell somebody that they're like, but doesn't that make it so
1: much sweeter when you win though? No,
2: because when you (laughs) you actually look at something that you don't have and you're like, man, but I could have it. You
1: don't, you don't sound very convincing right now. Like we lose everything that we have, (laughs) but it is, it is the reality though.
2: It is. I mean, and that's the thing. A lot of people can't stomach it. I had one kid when I left Oxy going to two kids, then going to three kids and the more kids you got, the more risk-averse you tend to want to be. But mm-hmm. I'm like the complete opposite. You know, my wife would kill me for it, you know, and she still wants to sometimes because it's like <laughs> I'll take chances and I want to blow everything we have in a savings account or something. I'm like, I believe in it, you know, <laughs> and, and we're going to do
1: it. I'm going all in on I'm Bitcoin, going, motherfuckers. i all
2: in. I know, and look where you're sitting now. Yeah. You know? No, but, but there's a chance, you know, and you just got to play it smart. You got to play it right because – like I mean, there is no cookie cutter approach. You can't you can try to follow in somebody else's footsteps that you know, but not all the times you're going to be successful. You know, you're going to have hard times. You're going to come across times. Another story that I didn't even mention when I was at XOG, literally in 2012 when XOG started. You know, we were great. Market was doing fantastic. It already rebounded after the 2008 collapse. It was back up on its high. People were just rolling in it. You know, 2014 came and just that's when the market just collapsed and well xog at the time we were living a lot out of cash flow what did our cash flow do it dried up quick because you know prices was at 100 fell down to below 40 and we're like oh shit you know so (laughs) xog actually laid everybody off the two principals of the company laid everybody off but then hired me back on as a consultant from time to time i wouldn't get near the work that i was doing as a full-time employee you know and i was like well crap man like you know, what am I going to do here? Well, this create, you know, the entrepreneur that I am, I was like, you know, I have the ability to get my name out there for for some type of service work. You know, so I started my own kind of land broker business. And within the matter of a month, I mean, it's kind of fake. And you just have to trust in certain things. You, just, you really have to. And like a big contract came my way with Texas Gas up in the north side of the woodlands. They were putting together a big development for a development called Foster's Ridge from D.R. Horton, a house building community. And they were needing to run a major gas line residential out to this community. And they needed me to acquire all the surface to get there. And so this was a long-term project for me as I was getting some other side work from here and there. And then, and I was still doing consultant for XOG. And so it turned out, I opened my own brokerage shop. I stayed busy when at the time my wife was kicking me, thinking, you should go get it, like go back to Oxy, go get another job to where, you know, we have health insurance. Yeah. Because at that point in time, we didn't, yeah. you know, and you're just taking, you're like, we're young, we got a kid, hopefully nobody gets sick, you know, type deal, but we're paying out of pocket if we do, you know. Mm-hmm. But that was a big chance too, because I, you know, I believed that the market would take a turn, XOG would come back around, and it did, you know, we were working contract, all of us, for like eight months. And I still had a lot of work that I was doing in between, so it was great. I was actually probably making more money then than I was full-time, you know. (laughs) But, you know, it's just taking chances, kind of whatever environment that you kind of put yourself in or that you get put in, you know, you don't get to make all the choices. Mm -hmm. But you just have to make the right decisions and and, and try to just, you know, use your best guess and, you know, decide what your personality is in, in, in terms of your Risk tolerance.
1: Yeah, something interesting. I wanted to ask you about. Kind of rewinding and get back when you were telling the story. You said you always had that incident in in your mind of them telling you that you didn't have the background or the the accolades to you know, be a landman for them, yeah. and so you went back to school. You know how that's something like me you know i told you i started roughnecking straight out of high school and worked in the field for the past decade and so that's something that people take a lot of digs at me for you know i don't have the college degree the college background and for me like there's not a person on this planet that likes learning as much as me like i spend all day reading and learning and so sometimes i kind of get that like i'm like man you know like jake it was just like what two weeks ago i was like man i'm gonna see if i can trade petro school or petro skills you know like i'll give them sponsorship on the podcast like i'm gonna go learn some basic geology from yeah. petro skills so you know you, you kind of talked about that like internal you know crisis that you had inside like oh well i got to go back to school and get this to prove to people that i do you know i can be a landman. i do deserve to, to have this so you know is that how do you feel about that now Looking, you know, looking back on it, is it something that, I mean, obviously it worked out for you because, you know, you met, you met your partners in the class, but
2: yeah, I mean, if I wouldn't, have, I mean, I, I think my master's program paid for itself day one, which yeah. kind of crazy, <laughs> you know? but um, I met some of the greatest people that I still know today and that I get, still get to call friends and work with, but you know, that always, that weighed in my mind, not because I didn't think I had the capabilities, but the more this industry was moving and I saw it firsthand that, you know back when my mom was a land man it was like you know high school diploma is all you needed you know then -hmm. then a bachelor's degree became very important and then like now today bachelor's degrees are you know a dime a dozen yeah and so it's the graduate courses that really put you ahead of people and you know it wasn't so much that it's like i just wanted something that i could fall back on like if you know during a downtime which you know we're seeing more frequently we're still having today Mm -hmm. that you know if i you know didn't have friends or people that I could, you know, do a startup with that I could go back to a major and try to get, you know, some type of position, but not be stuck in a pigeonhole, you know? Mm-hmm. So I wanted to chase after and just get additional schooling. I figured the MBA in energy was just my best bet because I knew enough about law and I've done enough, you know, legal documents and everything to know that I do not want to go to law school <laughs> and I do not want to be stuck researching case law all the time. You know? yeah. So Masters of Energy Business was just, it was great. It was challenging at times, but at the same time, it really gave me the diverse knowledge that I have today to know, mm-hmm. you know, international business, to know economics, finance, just everything. You yeah. know, supply chain, you get to touch on pretty much everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I did it. You know, I would encourage anybody that just, you know, doesn't have the proper background. You know, a lot of people go get out of school with political science degrees or something like that. And maybe they're having problems moving up in their corporation or something, you know, I would Mm -hmm. encourage them to, you know, a lot of the times, like I, most of my school got paid for from Lillis and XOG. Very cool. And so if you, if you're with a good employer that, you know, encouraged you to kind of you know, do that and get the additional schooling. Cause it, it's only going to help them out. You know, I mm-hmm. heard one, I heard somebody once tell me this story that they had at their company. like, I guess the CFO was talking to the CEO and was like, you know, if we're going to, the CFO was like, well, this guy's wanting to us to pay for his schooling, you know? And the CEO was like, well, I mean, let's do it. You know, the CFO was like, no, it's expensive. He's like, well, would you rather, would you rather the guy not do the schooling and stay here and work for us forever? Or have them do the schooling and then eventually leave because they get the schooling, they get a better offer. But what if they stay here forever mm-hmm. and they don't get the proper schooling and we're stuck with them,
1: you know? Yeah, I've heard a similar quote, you know, what if we invest in our employees and they leave? And the CEO asks, What if, what if we don't invest in them and they stay? Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> and that's what I'm getting at. You know, it's. I think most in any industry in the companies today, if they're smart they're going to invest in their employees. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of companies do it. Everyone that pretty much I know, I've worked at it. I mean, if you're good at negotiating and talking to your company, you can probably get some type of good deal out of it for sure. Yeah. So what are, and shit, this
1: podcast is just like flown by. I feel like yeah. we're going to have to have you on some other time, man. I'm glad we didn't break out the whiskey because we'll probably be talking <laughs> oh, for like three hours. No, but no So problem. we'll get you on sometime for another episode. But yeah. before we cut this one out, you know what are some some goals that you guys have at Ruckus for 2019? Where you really see see yourself going?
2: Man, we put together a lot of crazy goals. You know, some are unreachable. A lot of them are reachable. But you know, we are a bunch of crazy assholes that get together and really <laughs> and really like what we do. You know, we have fun doing it. Goals this year is really just to deploy our capital. You know, prove up other zones. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing you know, we're doing a lot of work that a lot of these big majors will come in and scoop up and do a lot of infill drilling that they don't want to do. You know, they have very, a bunch of these majors, their budgets, you know, they have very limited exploration capital. Some, some companies do have complete shops that do more exploration, but you know, our goals this year is to deploy our capital, prove up our theology and a lot of things that we're doing, make another large acquisition bolt on, you know, we, we want to drill at least probably 10 to 15 wells, remaining this year, probably running one or two rigs, which will really kind of give us the runway going into 2020. But, you know, mostly to deploy our capital in a smart way, conduct the science needed that we need to do to prove up some zones and make 2020 even better. You know, we, again, you know, this will probably be ruckus will probably be more of a two to four year type deal. You know, we had a a much shorter timeframe at Lillis that we met and exceeded in some cases, but doing more of a grassroots deal, you know, one, one piece of our puzzle here is completely grassroots pasture that used to be leased. That's not leased anymore. That we're going out, I'm stitching together, you know, 20, 30,000 acres here with no development on it. And so they're just all new term leases, you know? So that type of thing takes a little bit longer, you know, to do the title up front. You're not buying into anything, so you know that's one goal is to try to get all that stitched together this year. So 2020 we have more runway to do more delineation this year on one asset will be more of like science driven trying to prove up some of our thoughts that we have here and then our other asset hopefully if we can get into it, I call it our asset because you know I'm not gonna let it slip away from us, you know, but mm-hmm. you know currently has cash flow. that'll be more you know developing and chasing the trend that already is there. so, know, we got a lot of heavy goals to reach this year, but I promise you Avi Merman, our CEO is not going to let us, you know, slip up on those goals at all. I can assure you that. That's (laughs) awesome, man. Well,
1: if people want to find you, where can they find you? Are you on LinkedIn?
2: Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. We got our website up and running. If you want to look at some background on us too, we're at ruckusexp.com. Funny story on that. I was, when we were first, you know, we, this management team put everything together on Ruckus from the website to you know, forming the LLC or the C-Corp, whatever. We all did it out of the home offices. And when I was searching, I'm like, man, I need to get ruckusenergy.com, right? I'm like, shit, it's taken. (laughs) And so I find out, you know, I did my research. I found who owned the domain. I reached out to this guy. And he owned ruckusenergy.com. I was like, hey, man, can I buy it from you? And he was like, the price is right. I'm like, what are you doing with it? He was like, well, in 2015, I was going to make an energy drink called Ruckus. I was going to say energy drink drink for sure. I was like, shit, (laughs) <laughs> he ended up wanting way too much for us I was like we'll go with Ruckus CXP yeah. You know? so yeah so you can find us at ruckuscxp.com to kind of look at the background on us uh, we've got a great quality team but yeah also on LinkedIn and a lot of my awesome, stories man. on there as well so
1: very good man Seth we appreciate you coming on man thanks for taking the time and
2: I appreciate you all having me it was fun talking with
1: you of course man come, 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 come.